Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Daters, and welcome to episode 35 of No Rain Date, your local news and interview podcast for Saucon Valley and beyond. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Date and the publisher of Saucon Source, here with a roundup of the headlines for the week ending January 2nd, 2021. That's right, we are officially in 2021. Congratulations on making it through 2020. It has been a harrowing, difficult, unprecedented year for many of us, and we're going to talk more about that coming up in a year in review special segment with Johnny Hart, our intrepid freelance reporter who's been covering local news all throughout 2020. And we're going to look back on some of the biggest stories, and I think you'll find it interesting, even though we can only just sort of scratch the surface. But before that, talking about current news, the big story this week has been the arrest of a hunter in the shooting death of a young man at Nakamixon State Park back in late October. Many of you will recall this story. It was quite a shocking incident that happened October 24th. 18-year-old Jason Cut of Sellersville and his girlfriend were visiting the lake to watch the sunset. And at approximately 5.15 p.m., he was shot in the back of the head. He died two days later at St. Luke's Hospital, and a massive police investigation began headed by the Bucks County District Attorney's Office, which Wednesday announced that charges have been filed against 52-year-old Kenneth Troy Heller of Warminster. Heller is charged with criminal homicide, and a number of other charges. According to the district attorney's office, he was at the lake that day and was the man who Cut's girlfriend said she saw wearing hunting apparel, apparently an orange hunting vest. And the implication from the news release that the district attorney put out was that Heller was actively hunting at the time And that certainly caused a lot of discussion on our Facebook page where I know some commenters questioned whether hunting should be permitted in a state park or state recreation area. That is nothing new. And as other readers pointed out, an incident of this nature is exceedingly rare. I cannot recall another one in which somebody was hurt, let alone killed, by an accidental firing of a hunter's gun in a state park. Nevertheless, it's a tragedy, and our hearts go out to the family of Jason Cutt, and that's something that District Attorney Matthew Weintraub also stated at a news conference that was held, that this really isn't a happy ending. It's a kind of resolution. The district attorney said that Heller plans to plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter at an upcoming hearing. That will not be until at least April, though. He was committed to the Bucks County Correctional Institution following an arraignment before District Judge Gary Gambardella in Upper Bucks on Wednesday. And as District Attorney Weintraub pointed out, it was thanks to eyewitnesses that Kenneth Heller was identified. Early on in the investigation, the district attorney said that three different vehicles were seen near the area of the shooting, which was near the Old Ridge Road uh, access gate and across from the marina at Lake Nakamixon. The Bucks County detectives worked tirelessly to track down the owners of those three vehicles, and apparently it was sort of a process of elimination, and that eventually led them to Kenneth Heller, who was the owner of one of the vehicles. Uh, They did not say which one. However, once they located him, apparently additional evidence came to light, such as the fact that Immediately following that weekend, he did not report to work. When he did return to his job, co-workers stated that he was, quote-unquote, visibly shook up. 
And they also told detectives that shortly after the shooting, Heller had given away his guns, ammunition, and hunting gear, which certainly would sound incriminating under the circumstances. And the investigation progressed from there until the point in early December when the district attorney said that he, quote, admitted to firing his 17 caliber Marlin rifle, the one located during the December 10th search from the area of the gate on Old Ridge Road shortly after 5 p.m., and that the projectile from his rifle struck and killed the victim, end quote. Furthermore, the district attorney said that Quote, Heller also admitted that he made no attempts to inform authorities that he took the fatal shot according to the complaint. End quote. That's from the news release. And uh, certainly that's very disheartening to hear that a young man with his entire life in front of him had it come to uh, an abrupt ending simply because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, so to speak, but doing nothing to hurt anybody else, minding his own business and... Um, and, and I'm sure it'll be difficult for his family to ever get past this tragedy. In other news this week, we have another police-related story out of Upper Bucks County. This involves a Hellertown man who is charged with allegedly attacking a 52-year-old Quakertown woman earlier in the month of December. Jason Drago is accused of committing the assault on Old Bethlehem Road during a period of hours, and according to authorities, he attacked the woman, choked her, grabbed her by her hernia. That's directly from the police news release, state police at Dublin. He also allegedly burned her with a lit cigarette. So that's a serious case, and uh, we have a story about those charges. We also covered a business story this week, which was a bit unusual, since it involved a temporary closing of a business, a very well-known business, but without any real reason given for it. Over the weekend, the previous weekend, readers brought it to our attention that the wine and spirit shop in the Creekside Marketplace Shopping Center, aka the Giant Shopping Center, just south of Hellertown on Liceville Road, was closed. Signs were hung in the window saying that the business was temporarily closed until further notice due to an emergency. What that emergency was was not specified. Sock and Source attempted to find out the reason for the closure by reaching out to the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. We did not receive any response to our inquiry. This story was certainly widely circulated, especially on Facebook, generated a lot of conjecture. Unfortunately, like I said, we did not have the ability to update it with more information about the reason for the closing despite our efforts. The good news, if you are a regular patron there or if you needed to stock up on some libations for the New Year's holiday, the liquor store did reopen by Wednesday, December 30th. Everything appeared to be normal, so it was open before New Year's, which is one of the busiest times of year, obviously, for wine and spirits stores in in Pennsylvania and everywhere else. I would be curious to know how much champagne and Prosecco they sell in the week or weeks leading up to the New Year's holiday. That might be something interesting to talk about next year. Perhaps we can do a little uh, story about that. But yes, the, the store is open again, and we hope everybody there is happy, healthy, and we extend the same wishes to you in celebration of the New Year. We hope that regardless of what your 2020 was like, 2021 will be a better year for you, a healthy year and a prosperous year. We're certainly looking forward to continuing our coverage of Saucon Valley and beyond in 2021, and we will be laser focused on that. One final note, I would like to congratulate Brian Doherty, who is the winner of our Holiday Lights contest. Johnny Hart, who managed the contest, was able to visit Brian and, of course, following COVID-19 safety protocols, presented him with his 
prize for winning the best decorated house. Brian's house, which is a historic home in Nazareth Borough, is beautifully decorated with white lights. And the house itself is actually painted red and green in honor of their love for Christmas. So that's pretty cool. We have pictures of the prize presentation on Sock and Source. You can check that out, learn a little bit more about the special house, and maybe be inspired for next year. We had nearly 30 entries for the homes portion of the contest. Brian's was far and away the most popular. Uh, He received something like 160 votes for his entry and well-deserved because it clearly took a lot of work like many Christmas light decorators. It's, it's also a labor of love for him, I gather, and we appreciate everybody who takes time to do that because they really are spreading a little joy, and this year it was all the more needed. We hope you enjoyed those photos and going on the lights tour. If you did that, and we will have more coverage of the conclusion of the contest with our presentation of the funds raised by it to the Center for Animal Health and Welfare, the Allentown Rescue Mission, and the Food Bank of the Hellertown Area Ministerium. That'll be early in 2021. We are still working on coordinating those donations and uh, a little trickier because of COVID-19, but we will certainly be excited to get them to the organizations that really need them and we're looking forward to that so once again happy new year and next up we have our year in review discussion and we hope you enjoy that as well here at sock and source our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community a large part of that is a public service and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels, and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so, and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online, and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members, and thank you for considering becoming a future member. Welcome to the final episode of No Rain Date for 2020. I'm Josh Popachak, and I'm the host of No Rain Date. I'm here with our reporter, Johnny Hart, from Sock and Source, and we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We're going to talk about the year in review because it's been such an incredible year for local news uh, as well as national news. We've been there to cover it every step of the way for you. So we're going to look back on on some of the big stories and some of the stories that you might not have heard about because you were distracted by all of the things that were that were taking place. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic dominated news throughout the year. However, it did not really begin to do that until late February. I had to go back and look through my files on sockandsource.com and it turns out that the first article I published that had anything to do with the coronavirus was February 29th so about two months into the year and this was when 
the superintendent for Saucon Valley School District, Dr. Craig Butler, put out one of the first communications to parents about the coronavirus. He issued an email February 29th saying that there had not been any reports of any cases involving COVID-19 in the school district. Of course, that would all change later and not until the current school year, the one that we're in, because by mid-March, schools in Pennsylvania statewide were shut down and they never reopened for the rest of the school year, rather. Saucon Valley was able to host a graduation ceremony in June. However, that was quite different from their traditional ceremony. It was held outside in the parking lot, sort of as a drive-through type ceremony because of social distancing requirements. So we covered it outside. And and then it actually worked out, I think was a good example of an adaptation that worked well. It was planned for a number of weeks. Everybody was pretty happy with the result, even though it was very different, as I said, from a, a regular graduation. Students had to stay in their cars with their family members throughout. So it it made for some interesting photo opportunities. (laughs) The cars were all decorated with streamers and, you know, messages of support for their students. Like some of them had flags for the schools, the colleges that the students would be attending. I was looking back through some of those photos today and, and it was pretty pretty neat to see that and and sort of a of a bright spot at a time when uh, everybody was weary because in the spring there was a lot of death from COVID-19 even here in uh, the Lehigh Valley and there were deaths in the Saucon Valley and there continued to be unfortunately we've ridden two waves at this point we had the big wave in the spring that began in March and led to the shutdown of much of the state, including schools, including a lot of businesses. Sock and Source, of course, never stopped publishing because as a news media company, we were considered uh, essential and life-sustaining by the state. But we had to pivot like everybody else and, and work differently due to the pandemic. We actually stopped producing No Rain Date for about five months from mid-March to late August. So that was difficult to do that. It was the right decision at the time. We're just glad that we were able to bring it back, albeit with some changes. We're currently interviewing most of our guests over the phone because it's just a safer method due to the current statistics for COVID-19. Yes, I remember, I think our last interview, Johnny, was with uh, Andy Lee from I think Braveheart. it was. And, and we did try a little, I mean, we did do a little bit, like you said, adapting. We did have a, you know, like a panel with some small businesses throughout right. the, the pandemic. But I, I was actually trying to go back and look at what was the last one. And I think it was with Andy Lee. Yep. And the Allentown Rescue Mission was on that last one. So that was March 11th. And -hmm. then we actually did talk a little bit with Craig Butler on March 21st. That was, you know, kind of like an update on the school district and what they were doing. And then we did the business roundtable on April 24th. So those were kind of like the the two episodes we put out during the, the more red phase of the shutdown. Right. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, as, as everyone's had to do, we, we did a little bit of pivoting and we kind of switched up a little bit for those two episodes. Those were phone interviews, which is, as you just mentioned, what we're doing a lot now. And yeah, it wasn't until August that we were able to bring it back with Chief Derek Richmond. And then we had Allison Guido from Off the Trail. So a couple, a bit of a break there, but, you know, we still put out two episodes and they were pretty, pretty good episodes during that time. Yeah, I think the Zoom episode was really important. It was about how local businesses were responding and adapting to the challenges of COVID-19, which most of them had been dealing with it for over a month. And certainly it affected everybody, every business and, and every organization. But we had Dave Spurk from Steel Club on that, I remember. We had yeah, we Andy had, Warner yeah. from Andy Black Burger Farms. Yeah. Kindred Spirits, we June had June Rose. Rose. And we even had Jessica O'Donnell joined us, I believe. Yeah, we right. were tagged in there. Yeah, and kind of to your point of every business had to, you know, kind of stay on their pivot during that time. We, we kind of had a good, you know, a good selection of businesses 
We had Black River Farms, War Dog Spirits. Right. So we, Andy we did had, speak. had pivoted his business to the business includes the winery and a distillery, which is War Dog Spirits. A lot of distilleries began producing hand sanitizer right. because it was in short supply at that point. It was desperately needed by the hospitals yeah. and others. Unfortunately, in the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of hoarding that happened. I, I'll never forget being at ShopRite on Freemansburg Avenue. This was like around March 6th, I think, mm-hmm. very early March, and it was just pandemonium in there like i could not believe like what i was seeing the lines of people the amount of stuff they were buying um it was redonkulous and (laughs) there were no limits on on items at that point like so so people were just sort of panic buying and Mm -hmm. and that caused a lot of problems down the line for individuals and organizations that really desperately needed the ppe right personal protective equipment we all learned that term very <laughs> fast. I mean, I remember doing things like making my own hand sanitizer at mm-hmm. home. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom made Absolutely. face masks, like DIY. Right. You know, now these things are all readily available. Mm-hmm. Like you see them everywhere, like hand sanitizer, huge hand sanitizer displays. Right. So that's good that at least we have access to those products better access to them but there are still some supply chain issues in the fall i reported on like a paper towel shortage Mm -hmm. and toilet paper shortage that seems to have corrected itself once again but some places still have limits on stuff like that i know i was in wegmans and they're limiting like one per person of stuff like that so possibly that's part of the reason why it's it's more readily available now but fortunately we don't have to worry about shortage of toilet paper at the moment which is good right and and i think some of the supply chain issues may go to factories where where large numbers of workers are are out of work because they're either they tested positive for the virus or they're quarantined because they were exposed to somebody and so these types of work stoppages are disrupting the supply chain for different food products and i've never experienced anything like that in my lifetime you know you just you don't have the predictability when shopping that you once did Mm -hmm. and and i think everybody's kind of learned to live with that to some degree and become Mm -hmm. a little more flexible as far as uh what their expectations are and that's probably ultimately a good thing. A lot of a lot more people have turned to online shopping, and that's something that is both understandable, but also a little bit scary for mm-hmm. some of our local businesses that have right. depended on walk-in traffic, and maybe couldn't or can't easily pivot to accommodate online shopping. You can't sure. just build an online store overnight. And no. if you're a restaurant, I mean, many of the restaurants have successfully navigated the troubled waters of this year by expanding their takeout options, delivery, um, because at various times you have not been able to eat inside. That's currently the case and has been the case since the middle of December. Now we're coming to the end of that three-week ban that Governor Tom Wolf imposed over the holiday period. But (laughs) we're still not going to be out of the woods when that ends, because even though the vaccine is now being distributed, the COVID-19 vaccine, it's going to be months at least until a large segment of the population is vaccinated. So it's possible that over the winter months, we'll continue to see disruptions and and spikes in terms of surging caseload Mm -hmm. and then the state taking measures to mitigate that by selectively shutting down parts of the economy. Uh, It's really hard to say, and I I know that's put a lot of businesses in a difficult position, and um, some have adapted by, you know, creating outdoor enclosures for their patrons to sit in. Johnny, you wrote a story recently about some of the businesses, and you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's something that... I've actually had the chance to cover a little bit throughout this whole process is restaurants and adapting and and that sort of thing. And the most recent one was with the new wave of restrictions, which you're right, that that does come to an end pretty soon, which is 
almost a little bit spectacular when it was first announced that, you know, it was this big deal and, and all of a sudden, you know, we've, we've kind of pushed through it. We're through Christmas now and that's obviously a very busy time of year for a lot of these businesses and that's something that they spoke to me about. But yeah, the most recent, the most recent bit of news was that was with this newest restriction which took place, I forget when, it was before Christmas by... I think December 12th. Okay, December, yeah, that sounds about right. And I know it ends, supposed to end on January 4th, but we spoke to Andy Lee of Braveheart, who he's been a good resource throughout this whole pandemic. And, and one thing that we'll mention a lot is flexibility, and that is definitely a recurring theme, and Andy Lee is definitely a very flexible and just an innovative kind of guy. We, we actually spoke to him that last episode before the pandemic was about the new deck they were putting in. So mm -hmm. he almost sort of foresaw everything that was going to happen because back then we had no idea. But that deck ended up being a, a, a real big lifeline for Braveheart. And they continued to use it. They, uh, they just affixed some heavy-duty canvas around, you know, the full thing, which helps enclose it. They can keep it a little bit warmer. He did want to stress that there's still slots underneath the deck, which kind of allow for airflow still. That's that's kind of a, a problem that restaurants are facing is they they want to, and not only restaurants, but you know, you'll see a lot of people criticizing restaurants for this is how is this any different from indoor dining? So they mm -hmm. got to try and include some sort of, you know, ventilation, some sort of airflow and, and Braveheart does a good job of that. The, the cool thing about Braveheart is they, they're using ice fishing tents. That was kind of like the featured picture for that story because it's just an interesting thing to see on Main Street Hellertown is this red Eskimo brand ice fishing tent that they're <laughs> seating people in. They have two of them actually. Yeah, but, I wish I'd gotten a picture of that after we had the big snowstorm a couple weeks ago because then that would have been the time to it eat. It would have looked like Alaska. Yeah, seriously, that, and that would, was yeah. right in front of Braveheart. We had about a foot of snow on December fifteenth, mm -hmm. and somehow, or no, December seventeenth, somehow uh, that all melted before Christmas, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we didn't even have a white Christmas. But no. But that's twenty twenty for you, right? You know, I mean, that's sort of been the running joke this year. Like anything bad that happens, oh, it was twenty twenty. You know, striking again, and it's understandable that people sort of develop that gallows humor to deal with what everybody's been going through to one degree or another and, mm -hmm. and the frustration of not being able to be with friends and family and you know having your your life disrupted i know many people have still not sent their kids back to school that that was a very uh, difficult decision for some families in the summer because they had the option of either in most cases they had the option of either sending their kids back to school as part of a hybrid model, or in Saucon Valley's case, it was it was a full-time op uh, option, five days a week, or having them at home. But not everybody has a work schedule that would accommodate that. So we had about 20%, I think, of Saucon Valley students that were kept at home to study online, and about 80% went back to school at the beginning of the year. Now that number may have changed since then due to various circumstances. That has been a, a story that we've covered extensively throughout the fall, the number of cases in Saucon Valley schools. The first cases and the majority of the cases so far have been in the high school and they have involved students. There have been a few cases involving staff, but as of today, which is December 30th, there have been 42 cases total within the district this year. Probably not an unusually high number given the size of the district. Saucon Valley has about 2,500 students and several hundred staff members. Uh, they're certainly one of the biggest employers in the, in the local area. And all school districts are, are facing the challenge of keeping the virus out of their schools. In Saucon Valley's case, they've selectively shut down the high school several times when cases were on the rise there. Mm -hmm. All of the schools were closed for a week following Thanksgiving due to, like as a preventive measure, basically, right. because it was realized that students would be gathering with people from outside their immediate household mm -hmm. over the holiday. Some may have traveled to other states so um, that was probably a good decision to do that. And, uh, and others did that, yeah. too. That was a common thing. Right. Because you expect people to, even in the middle of a pandemic, it's expected that people are going to meet up around the holidays. And 
So that's, you know, it was prudent by the school district to, to take that step. Right. And we know, I mean, currently, and, and this seems to be continuing, the majority of new cases are in younger people, mm. teenagers, young adults, who tend to be more socially active. And the good thing is that they're less likely to suffer serious complications or die from the coronavirus. However, um, they can easily spread it Mm -hmm. to people who are immunocompromised or elderly or have other risk factors for developing like a severe case of COVID-19. And and that's that's been the main issue that the virus spreads so easily and uh, you have to be like vigilant against it all the time. And when kids are, uh, are are small, like it's very difficult to expect them to do something like wear a mask for eight hours a day. Right. And I think that's, you know, part of the reality of, of why we've seen the number of cases that we have seen this fall. Pennsylvania started off doing pretty well, like overall for a large state, like yeah, we were much better than New York and New Jersey. That sort of flipped at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say during the fall to where like Pennsylvania started becoming like the leader in terms of like new cases and deaths were surging and New York and New Jersey continued to do sort of better. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, every state has its own mitigation protocols, but Pennsylvania was one of the stricter ones in the beginning with having a, a mask order that was issued and then that was later expanded at various points. I think in the beginning, I certainly saw more people not wearing masks in like mm-hmm. sh- grocery stores like in the spring and summer. I mean, now I feel like it's become pretty rare. What would you say? I would that? say, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And working in retail over the summer, I, I saw that too. You know, there were more people not wearing masks in the beginning and then it just kind of reached the point where there just wasn't much resistance or as much resistance Mm -hmm. anymore which was good so yeah some you know eventually people just kind of got maybe more comfortable wearing a mask or it just almost became a second nature to put your mask on before you get out of your car and you know that that certainly helped keep people safe so it was a good thing that it became sort of second nature at some point not sure when exactly that came but it was through some point over the summer i would agree Right. I mean, and, and unfortunately, there were there were disputes, nothing locally that turned violent. But I remember one story I had was about an altercation that happened at the Wegmans in Hanover Township, the Bethlehem Wegmans, where I guess somebody who was wearing a mask muttered something about somebody else who mm-hmm. wasn't as he walked past him in an aisle. And that wow. just erupted into like this tirade that the man who wasn't wearing the mask he flew off the handle and that was captured on video and then shared on Twitter and it went viral and it was a big mess. So it's can't say what it's like for other countries because I haven't been in other countries during the COVID-19 pandemic for obvious reasons. But I feel like in America, like our uh, individualistic nature has mm-hmm. sort of been a hindrance in terms of controlling the virus and you know our tradition of accepting differences mm-hmm. and people people's different ways of life mm-hmm. has also sort of come back to haunt us right. in a way because like this virus is relentless mm-hmm. and you can't sort of pussyfoot around it and and control it by saying well you know <laughs> If you don't want to wear your mask today, okay. Right. It kind of has to be done, you know, these safety protocols have to be followed all the time, you know, almost like with military precision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not, like, typical for most Americans to do Mm -hmm. anything like that. So it's going to continue to to be an issue. And it's frustrating at times because you want, you know, everybody wants to – quote unquote go back to normal although i don't think we hear that being said as much as we no, once did i think I mean, people have maybe given up on what was formerly normal right because by the time we can go back to something so much time is going to have passed mm-hmm. and so many things have changed and whatever we go back to 
will be different right. than what things were before. And I think people are, are just learning to accept that. I, I would agree. That's something I hadn't thought about in a while, but that's something I hadn't heard in some time is, you know, when will things go back to normal? Maybe at some point we won't have to wear a mask everywhere we go or stuff like that. You know, that might be considered normal, but I think the way, you know, people and businesses kind of progress from this point on is always kind of, you know, keeping in mind what we went through here in 2020. Mm-hmm. And we've mainly just been talking about COVID-19 here. Obviously, like this is, I said to Johnny, we could talk about just COVID-19 and our coverage of it for hours. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of other huge stories in 2020. Of course, one of them was uh, about racial injustice. And that began with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in late May. George Floyd, I'm sure you you know, was killed when a Minneapolis police officer kneeled on his neck for something like 11 minutes and he couldn't breathe. And that triggered a wave of outrage, not, well, initially in Minneapolis, but the protest against George Floyd's killing quickly spread to cities around the the U.S., and eventually they spread to small towns and even places like Hellertown, which is not a hotbed for any type of political protest normally. There was a protest that was attended by about 100 people in mid-June outside Mm -hmm. Hellertown Borough Hall, and we covered that. We also covered protests in uh, Bethlehem, which were significantly bigger, protests in East End, I know I covered one in Regalsville. They were all over the place into well into the summer. Yeah, much like COVID, they they spread far and wide and kind of everyone, whether or not you wanted to to really get involved with it, it was something that came across your radar. Right. And yeah, the Bethlehem one, we had a story on June fifth about that was that was the second one that was more of kind of like a stand in at the the Bethlehem Public Library. You were at the one that was more of a march prior Mm -hmm. to that, but and that was at an interesting time, too, because that was, you know, right in, in kind of like the thick of everything with COVID, too. And so there was, you know, different opinions on, on these protests of, you know, these large amounts of people. But it was it was cool to be there and to cover it. You know, it felt like you were at something historical. It felt more important than just, you know, going out and covering anything else you were going to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, to you know, obviously everyone in these pictures, there's a lot of people wearing masks and stuff, and you never felt super unsafe at these you know that wasn't really on your mind it was almost like you know what you were there for was was a really big thing and you know everyone was you know out to support this one common cause and it was it was a cool thing to be a part of and to cover it just came out at a bizarre time really you know i wonder what the movement could have been like if it wasn't during the covid pandemic and if that really hindered it much at all i guess we'll not know but right i mean it's the two things are are so intertwined Mm -hmm. it's um it's difficult yeah, to you say. Can't, yeah, you can't really separate. I remember, I mean, it was an easy criticism for people who didn't like the protest to to level that right. they were spreading COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But there didn't seem to be much evidence for that mm-hmm. because, like you said, most people were wearing masks. Yeah. The only thing that wasn't really possible for the most part was physical distancing, like mm-hmm. staying at least six feet apart. But they were always held outside, at least all the ones that I was at. There was the opportunity for fresh air to dilute any any disease that may have been in the air. And, and, And if you look back at the statistics, I mean, there wasn't a huge leap in cases right after the protest. That That didn't come until later in the summer there was a surge, but not so much in Pennsylvania, more in other parts of the country. Right. And then our big surge, our second wave was in the fall after the protests mm-hmm. had well after the protests. largely died down. I remember another thing, I mean, many of the protests were associated with Black Lives Matter and kind of became this back and forth between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Right. With a lot of people right. uh, against the protests saying, you know, All Lives Matter. And that kind of, in my opinion, minimalized the the issues that mm-hmm. were at the root of the protests. Obviously, everyone's life has meaning, but the protests were against systemic racism right. in the U.S. and it became very clear quickly that many people, including many people here in, in the Saucon Valley community, do not believe that that 
is a problem. Right. So that was interesting <laughs> to to realize that. And I, another thing that in that same sort of event was it almost became like a pro police anti police sort of thing, and, and something that we reported on throughout the you know throughout the year was the the sales of like police signs. And I know I personally saw more like signs supporting our police out. Right. Um, and so and and that's something that you know I think everyone can get behind is is you know supporting the the police that are doing a good job. And so I think that's why. You know, you saw a lot of those signs out as well. So, you know, people on, you know, there probably were some Black Lives Matter people who also maybe considered getting a sign like that because they wanted to make it very clear that, you know, they're not anti-police or anything like that. But yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a question that remains unresolved and probably will be unresolved for some time is where does supporting the police end mm-hmm. and expecting more accountability from police begin absolutely yeah that that's kind of like what i was trying to maybe articulate there and it's a very you know a very gray area maybe depending on how you look at it and that's probably how it was able to get dragged into like the black lives matter movement so easily because if you listen to i feel like if you listen to a lot of or if you were at any of these black lives matter at you know events it wasn't that wasn't you know police being brought into the equation wasn't really a super common thing all the time it, it was more so focused on you know these black lives that we lost a lot of talk about the names of the people that were lost and i remember at the event we went to in bethlehem it was a lot of just shouting people's names and it was yeah it was definitely powerful to hear you know these names that you'd heard in the news maybe like months ago and you just kind of forgot like what was, what was the backstory of that one again and you have mm-hmm. to go home and look it up that was something that stood out to me at that Bethlehem one we went to. It's just the names and names on signs and stuff like that, which is really cool to see. That's that's a good point. I mean, and and you're right. Most of the protests were more oriented towards the national issues mm-hmm. the, or, and the national names like Breonna Taylor. Yeah, that was right at the same um, time. Breonna and George Taylor. Floyd, obviously. Right. And um, there are many more. The Hellertown protest was a little bit different because it was more sort of localized. Mm-hmm. And Bill Bruhn, who is the head of the Saucon Democrats and mm-hmm. previously ran for uh, Hellertown Borough Council, uh, he helped organize the the protest uh, mm-hmm. in Hellertown. And was it at the police? It was actually yeah, right outside the police station, which is in Borough Hall. Sexual and area. there were um, people like former high school students who talked openly about their firsthand experiences with racism in Southern Valley schools or being a transgender student and encountering bias because of that. Because the movement came to encompass more than just race, Mm -hmm. where transgender issues really were brought to the forefront by it, and they still are. I mean, even though people aren't out protesting in the streets right now, I mean, the coverage of these issues has continued. Right. Um, I think there will be a lot more scrutiny going forward on local leaders. Mm-hmm. We covered some school board members in mm-hmm. Upper Montgomery County and Bucks County that were making some questionable statements mm-hmm. about or voicing support for issues that were not in alignment with the Black Lives Matter and and transgender acceptance movements. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue to see stories like that, unfortunately, or fortunately, because Mm -hmm. it's probably a kind of reckoning that the country has to go through. Yeah. And for those, you know, marginalized groups, it's, it's nice to see, you know, that there are repercussions for speaking out against them. So it's, you know, it's a good thing to cover, even though it might be a negative thing, you know, I think in the long run, it shows that the views are kind of shifting and, you know, to be so outspoken in a negative way isn't as accepted anymore, which is a sign of progress, which is good. I think 2020 gave us progress along those lines, at least just having the big scope on, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and then the things that it grew to encompass, at least having that big scope on it for seemingly months at a time during the summer, you know, at least we had people talking about it and thinking about that sort of thing, which was good. And and I should just point out, I don't think like as far as like, you know, freedom of speech, that that issue came up a lot with regard to mm-hmm. uh, people's opinions. Everybody is entitled to their opinion. But in some cases, like if you're the head of a school board whose duty it is to 
protect all students, keep all students safe, include all students, you're not really setting a good example by advocating, you know, any kind of bigotry towards, you know, somebody that might be within your community. Sure. A lot of these these stories really come back to holding you know, public and elected officials mm-hmm. to a higher standard. Right, and these people sort of almost have a, a responsibility to look after their community or the people that they serve. And, and when people from these, you know, and there is a transgender person or community that you have to help serve or be a part of serving, exactly, that, that, that goes beyond, you know, First Amendment. That's, that's you kind of, you know, not necessarily doing your job or just not doing it correctly or in a way that serves the people it's supposed to serve. And that's why I think the next round of local elections, which is in 2021, will be interesting. I think we mm-hmm. will see more crowded fields of candidates than we have in the past because a lot more people became aware of problems in our society in mm-hmm. 2020 and they're motivated to to change them. And some of them are going to try and do that by running for things like local school board right. and borough councils, township councils. Mm-hmm. So we'll certainly be there to report on those races. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, they don't get all the attention that the big, you know, presidential elections and, and other big races do. But local elections are important. Absolutely. If you don't think that's true, just look at your property tax bill, because <laughs> <laughs> that's who determines it. And lots and lots of other things that directly impact your quality of life. Right. That's something that motivates us here at Sock and Source to do what we do. That's to bring you the local information that you can't find anywhere else. Also, you know, when we cover stories, we try and do it, you know, completely. Like I know when we covered graduation, we had video, we had, you know, more photos than anybody else for sure. We had probably a couple hundred photos. Mm-hmm. We had photos of of every graduate. I think there were about 165, 175 members of the class. So, yeah, we had over 200 photos for sure from that. And shout out to Chris Christian for, for being there. It yeah. was a long day for him. And, uh, and, and but Chris but, was also busy over one other thing we did, not necessarily related to stories, but was our, our coverage of the Saucon Valley sports, fall sports season. Yep. We covered some of their football games. We, we had to, this was also brought on about COVID was, you know, there, there's a more of a need to stream these high school sporting events because of the limitations on spectators. So that was one other thing that we got into over this fall, which was, you know, we hope that we were able to help people enjoy the football games that you might not have been able to go to like you would in a normal season. We also covered a bunch of the girls' soccer games. We had a good sponsor for that. And, of course, Chris helped with that as well. But that was another kind of bizarre thing that we we got into this year, and more so than anything, I guess, due to COVID. But it was also just a cool thing to do. I think People were probably trending towards that anyways, you know, now how easy it is to live stream an event, you know, might as well live stream a a football game or a a girl's soccer game or something like that for the people who can't go out and see it. Right. And I think there's a future for that beyond COVID-19 because there are always going to be people that can't attend for whatever reason, you know, maybe they're out of town, they're elderly, they're, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows. But yeah, I mean, that was a great opportunity and I'm glad that we we're able to partner with the mm-hmm. Saucon Valley Athletic Department on that. Right. Uh, Johnny did great work with the cameras, and and I did some not so great work, but <laughs> but I still uh, had fun, and I'm very grateful to the businesses that stepped up to be sponsors, of course. Yeah, and Bob Bob Fry, the athletic director at Saucon Valley, was was great to work with throughout the fall. Yes. Yes, and we're not really sure about winter sports at this point. Like fall sort of, fall sports unfortunately sort of ended abruptly due to the surge in cases. Mm-hmm. It was an, an up and down season for a lot of the teams. I know football in particular was, was impacted. They only ended up playing five games where in a normal season they would have played at least 10. But on the other hand, at least they did get to play. Right. Yeah, that was the good thing about, you know, fall sports at least are mostly outdoors. I think there's like 
girls volleyball might be one of the few indoor sports. Winter, obviously, you have a, a bit more of an issue with that now that we're moving into more of an indoor sports season. So obviously there's a lot up in the air right. for what's going to happen with this winter sports season. But at least then it gets warm again in the spring and we can get outside for spring sports. And hopefully by then we'll see cases on the way down and, and hopefully a more something closer to a regular season for those sports teams. But we got a long way to go before we get there. But we'd like to you know hopefully continue bringing coverage of those sports if we can in the spring, if there's a need for it. Absolutely. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned in 15 years of covering news in this area, it's that, like, high school sports bring the community together like few other things do. So from that perspective, it is really important to cover them Mm -hmm. and cover them well. We hope to, you know, continue to expand our coverage of high school sports. And if you are a fan of that, you can help by becoming a member on Sock and Source. We have a membership platform that's totally voluntary. I've been highlighting that more recently, but if you go on the site, you'll see the link for it, and it gives you options to become a member either on a monthly basis, by donating on a monthly basis, or quarterly or yearly. And uh, once we have a few more members, we hope to roll out some exciting perks for members, like text alerts for breaking news, is one of the, the first priorities. Hopefully that'll happen in 2021. We'll continue to keep you posted about that. We've been recording No Rain Dates since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening.